You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to our first dialogue in Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to the German mystic, Meister Eckhart, who lived in the 13th and 14th centuries. And Jim, I'm here with Jim and Corey, and we're excited to discuss Meister Eckhart today. And Jim, I really like the way you're, you seem to be gently exposing us to Eckhart in this first um, teaching that you offer. Yes. I wanted to be careful um... You know, I think the podcast, the intention is to have them be very invitational and heartfelt, something we can walk around with during the day. And I wanted to be very careful not to get into the details of kind of the academic background, philosophy, metaphysics, philosophical theology, and so on, and just stay purely with his intention of these teachings as sermons. This dialogue. So that's been important for me as I set the tone here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. And I thought in this session we'd spend some time just getting to know and, and getting a deeper understanding of some of his words and some of his metaphors. You say that these mystics, they share a common worldview, but their, their language, their metaphors can be, can be quite different. Yes, I would say that they... What they all share in the Christian tradition is this importance of uh, living a, a life that honors the gift of daily life, then honors the gift of daily life illumined by faith, discipleship, and the call of discipleship to be ever more Christ-like, ever more merciful, ever more present, ever more forgiving, and so on. And then hoping that knowing in our hearts that when death comes, as Christ promised, when we pass through the veil of death, we're not annihilated but consummated. So in death, we move from a veiled experience of God's oneness with us, that is veiled in insights, veiled in hopes, veiled in consolations, veiled in aspirations, efficacious unto holiness. We move into unveiled glory, to be one with God as God is one with God, in our eternal nothingness without God. And so what they're talking about is this grace where God decides not to wait until we're dead to begin to reveal to us this unveiled communion and to live in fidelity to it. And they all share that in common, but each one of them is talking out of his or her own experience of that. And so each one, you you see the uniqueness of each one coming through. Who was the audience for these sermons that you're going to be taking us through? Some of them were choose a priest. There were sermons given at the liturgy. So sometimes they'd be in a church mm-hmm. and he would give them as a sermon. But the, the, some of the mainstay of them also were the Dominican nuns in Strasbourg. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, when he gave the sermons, because there were no tape recorders or ways to record it, they were so moved by the depth and beauty of it. They took very, very careful notes as he spoke. Then they got together and came up with the best draft that came the closest. And that's how we get a lot of the sermons, many of them, is through the nuns. Yeah. But they, the sermons would have been offered uh, often to the general public. 
Yes, he spoken. He was speaking to churches, yeah. and he was also then speaking the comment to the to the sisters. Yes, yes, because they're quite. They seem quite complex, but he obviously felt called to to share. Yes. Yeah. I think a feeling I get from him is that uh, I think he was probably so present when he spoke, mm-hmm. and some of his metaphors are so striking. You know, people could just tell not that they would begin to grasp what he was saying, but they could feel the beauty of it or be touched by it. And uh, that's the sense that I have. But with the nuns, I think, of the deep life of prayer, I think they were more capable collectively of being in residence with, you know, with him and uh, his teachings. And what's interesting about Eckhart is that he was a deep theologian. So if you wanted to break down the sermons, there's there's deep theological underpinnings to them as well as this, uh, what you describe as the imperative delivery. Well, actually, there's two things. that we One, in the collected works and the sources that we have, um, there's his teachings at the University of Paris. And a lot of them are scripture commentaries, very deep scripture commentaries, but more, more biblically based, more the philosophical theology of an understanding of scripture. And you see that theological framework. But then when he's in his sermons, he's teaching in the vernacular in German. So his mystical writings are also are as German, are the sermons. His Latin writings also have mystical connotations or a depth to it, but it's more explicitly biblical or theological in his language. So you can see both and how they, you can read them both back and forth mm-hmm. and see how they go together, really. Yeah. Amazing. You talked about one thing that's helpful to know about Eckhart is that he lived in the world, different from other mystics we've studied who were cloistered in a monastery, so that his method uh, came about in a life in the world and also that he faced some trials that we know of in his life, like uh, being brought on trial for for his teachings. Yeah, sure. The mystics we've been teaching so far, uh, like Teresa of Avila was a cloistered nun. Thomas Merton, my teacher, was a cloistered Trappist monk. Guigo was a Carthusian hermit. Carthusian cloister daughter. And um, Julian was a recluse. She lived in her anchor hole. But what's interesting about Eckhart is he was out in the midst of the world, both in the academy, both academic teaching. And then uh, when he, he moved on with his life, he was assigned a number of administrative duties. So he had to make long trips on foot, visiting the Dominican houses and um, dealing with the politics of that. And there were some issues around certain aspects of his teaching that were considered not to be, some people thought that the courts, the Vatican, so the Rome thought that he was pantheistic too far. And he, he denied that. He, he, there was an ongoing series of trials around that. He, so on. so he, he just lived a, a complicated, challenging, exhausted. And then in the midst of this busy, busy world, he had this beautiful path. And that's encouraging for us because most of us live in a busy, busy world. Yes. So he shows us a way that's possible for us to find this this unitive state with God in the midst of the busyness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good reminder as we start to look at his teaching. I, I find that really helpful to know that about him. Yes. In this session, Jim, you start out uh, with this idea of discipleship that of of working towards psychological and spiritual maturity. That Eckhart assumes his audience is doing that, knows to do that. And 
he uses a word uh, that I hadn't heard before when he describes uh, a way to be self-reflective, which is this idea of the powers. Yeah. And I wondered if you could just give us some insight into that word and how he was using it. So let's say first, I kind of, in the presentation, I start out with this importance of doing our homework in psychological spiritual maturity. So he starts out first with the um, importance of just honoring the gift of being alive, just being alive, and also being alive as someone who loves God, that we grow in, the, in daily life, in the midst of our daily life, and grow in our daily awareness of God's love for us and loving God, and it's how we express that in our attitudes and values and ministry, whatever. But then the next thing for Eckhart is stressing the, the importance of being a reflective person. That is, that we become aware of the interiority of ourselves. So today, what he calls the powers, we would call our faculties. For example, our, our thinking, our thinking to, the, to the intellect, memory to, to remembering things, desire, the, the will, the desire to love. So he's talking about, instead of using the word faculties, he uses powers to refer to the interiority of the mind because it's what the soul affects. That is, it's what the soul brings about by engaged effort. So in order to understand with the intellect, I have to engage in my intellect to grow in my understanding. In order to love, I have to engage in my will to foster like this. So he talks about the importance of the powers and the importance of having the powers illumined by grace and our thinking, our memory, our desires, and so on. And that's what I mean by, by powers, is uh, effectiveness, like self-efficacy, like this. It's just important to, to reflect on that and to be aware of that. So how I put it, we think about this, we think about that, but we rarely think about thinking. See, we rarely reflect on the gift of thinking and the nature of thinking and the nature of the thinking mind and of memory. So he's inviting us to do that, like know thyself. Mm, I see. So not to just reflect on what's happening inside of those faculties, but actually the faculties themselves and how they might be driving behaviors in ways we, we don't realize. That's right. So I can, um, I can, Buddhists talk about taking the backward step. Yes. I can step back and I might journal or reflect, not just on what I understand, but kind of reflect on the nature of my understanding and maybe what distortions might be in my understanding through internalized traumas and abandonments and prejudices and biases and how to have a clearer understanding or a more uh, loving understanding like that. So it's a kind of uh, uh, examination of conscience and discernment of spirits with regard to self-knowledge, to be, to be present to one's self. And, and that means also to be present to other people, to be more sensitive to their mind, to their thing, because that allows for that empathic resonance with others at a more interior level. That's really helpful. And I'm curious, Eckhart uses truth, justice, and goodness. Why do you think he chooses those words? In a way, they're the kind of the transcendentals of being. You know, the, the key sense is the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so truth is a dimension of being is the truth. How can we claim to be living an authentic life if we're indifferent to the truth? Mm. It's not an option. 
you know, it's, it's really a dimension of being itself, the true. How can I claim to be living an authentic life if I'm indifferent to justice, I, if I'm engaging in injustice and indifferent to that? So they're like the givens of the human experience, the givens of existence, to be awake and authentically awake in living our life. And I think that's why he chooses those. He's going to see later, we'll see in a later session, he says, that one who understands my teachings about the just person understands everything I say. Mm. And so he, he tries to ground us to find our way through justice or silence or, or beauty, whatever is pathways to this unit of state he's trying to lead us into. And for him, Jesus would have been the expression of these values in the world, like a role model for people? Yeah, true God and true man. He would have been the exemplar. Like he models mm -hmm. the authentic human being. So when you read the Gospels in this way, you see that his mind was lucid. You know what I mean? And his eyes were clear. And uh, he was the embodiment of love toward everyone, toward God and so on. So he kind of, he's the exemplar where the model, he's mentoring us. So in a way, when Jesus says, follow me, it's a transformative journey of perpetual conversion process into this more Christ-like, uh, way of life. When you reflect on that first section about uh, Eckhart encouraging us towards spiritual and psychological maturity or assuming we're on that path, he doesn't just point to that. He brings in this this hidden side of things and uh, in a very beautiful, subtle way. Here's the subtlety of Eckhart, like easing into Eckhart. So he's asked, you know, why do you love God? And then he says, I don't know. Then he says, because of God. And then he goes, why do you love truth? Because of truth. Why do you love justice? Because of justice. Why do you love it? But then he says, well, uh, why do you live? And he says, uh, my word, I don't know, but I'm glad to be alive. So it's interesting is there's something we know about being alive, but also in being alive through the powers, there's something that's hidden we don't know. Mm. And there's something about the love of God that we know through the grace of God, but there's something in the love of God that we don't know. And he says, that's why this soul acts with its powers and not with its essence. And its essence is what we don't know. And so this essence, different words for it, the summit of the soul, the ground of the soul, the depth dimension, and that's, that's our true homeland, is finding our way um, to that which the powers of their own accord are unable to comprehend. And uh, so that kind of gently starts to set things up See how to find our way to the ground or to the essence and live by it. You mentioned some of the words I just wanted to go over. So this this hidden access, this essence, the thing that, that we don't know, uh, he uses words uh, like the ground, the essence. You said that, I think you said the spark of the soul. The, the wording that helps me mm -hmm. to get the sense of this on the, the the ground, is that this ground isn't a ground you land on, but the ground is abyss-like, like it's a bottomless abyss. Someone once said in a talk that to them they had the word abyss had negative connotations, like the dark abyss. But this is a bottomless abyss of love, mm. or a bottomless oceanic abyss of mercy. So we say that the, the abyss-like depths of God, the ground, is by the generosity of God, given to us as the abyss-like depth of ourself. So the epitome of the generosity of God 
is that he said, God's crown is my crown, and my God, my crown is God's crown. We merge, and the generosity of God is a oneness. And so we're trying to find our way to this oneness that shines out through the powers, but it's filtered through the powers. So, I mean, we're trying to find our way to the transparency of this oneness itself. I love that word generosity, that we are the generosity of God. Yes. And it makes me wonder when I think about myself and in my powers, you know, when I might do the unjust thing or the hurtful thing, you know, without intention, but unconsciously or or even intentionally. But is that the generosity of God? Does it en- encompass all of that? Yes. He, he would use those as examples. Mm. You know, he would say moments like that, we get it's, that the generosity of God kind of shimmers and shines in these moments of our own generosity, mm. because our own generosity is an incarnate echo, this infinite generosity to us. So he's going to say, well, how to endlessly deepen that and become uh, absorbed in that and abide in that. But those are intimations of uh, this habitual state, this unitive state he's helping us to find. And Jim, what about when I do the opposite, that I might make mistakes or not be generous? It would, would we call that the generosity of God as well? No, it would be this. I was thinking recently, you know, uh, Thomas Merton, when he was in Asia, it's on, you can watch it on video. That's where he was electrocuted. He died right after that talk in Bangkok, Thailand. And he's speaking to these monks and nuns there in this room in Bangkok, Thailand. And he starts out by saying, he said, all the mystical traditions of the world's great religions, the Christian mystic, the Kabbalah of Judaism, uh, the deep teaching of yoga, uh, of the Yoga Sutra, the Sikhs, the tradition, the, tradition, the Sufi, the Sufi, the Muslim, all the so all these traditions, they all teach us something about daily human consciousness that uh, is impaired. It's impaired in that it's impaired in its ability to see this infinite generosity flowing out in and as our very life, in and as the sun moving across the sky, in and as the sacredness of the immediacy of everything. And so the spiritual life then is what is the path along which we are healed from that impairment, that it can shine all the brighter by being released from what hinders us from living in it. So the the mistakes or the behavior that's not loving is more coming from this impairment, this sense yeah, of being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the thing is, because we're in this, so in the Christian tradition is like original sin. Yeah. Out of the in the garden. So when they, the serpent says to Eve in this mythic story, if you eat this forbidden fruit, the one tree that God says you you can do whatever you want, just don't eat this fruit the power of good knowledge of good and evil. It says you'll be like gods. So at the heart of this, one way of looking at the story is they already were like God. Mm. Let us make the human person in our image and likeness. But they try to be like God without God. <laughs> see, they try to be like God on their own, and then they broke away from the oneness. I see, yeah. And so, and therefore, because our, our, the powers are wounded in this way, yeah. we're then susceptible to acting out that woundedness by the traumatizing things we do to ourselves and to each other and to the earth. And so the whole moral imperative is the healing 
of that. At a psychological level, a lot of psychotherapy is about the healing of that. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking is what is the depth dimension of that healing? How can we restore the, the vertical depth dimension of the taproot mm -hmm. into the ground so that the energies of that can flow out into the powers? I love this idea about generosity, that we are the generosity of God, that I am the generosity of God. And would it be true to say that when I act in generous ways in my life, that that, that is God's generosity? See, that's what we would say. As I mean, every religion has its own language for this, but in the Christian dispensation, we're in this fallen state, this waywardness. And so we see in the birth of Jesus that God's response to us in our brokenness is to become identified with us as precious in our brokenness. And then we see that great healing comes in the deep acceptance of our own brokenness. Mm. And that becomes the opening through which the infinite mercy of God flows into our heart. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Judge not and you shall not be judged. And so this is a experiential salvation mm -hmm. of the healing of the, of the brokenness, yes. So Jim, you teach in this session that in our day-to-day -day life, this ground of oneness, and I think you use the word communion as well, this communion with God, is covered over by the powers, but it's always present. And at times we can, we can see glimpses of it, and you use this beautiful example of the newborn baby Yes, let's say the powers of the soul, our faculties, is the grace of the human experience. But because these powers are exiled from the ground, mm -hmm. they're subject to these distortions and also to this possessiveness as if we're nothing but the powers. I'm nothing but the self things happen to. I'm nothing but the me that's going to be able to understand or not understand, to attain or not. We think we're nothing more than that. See? But underneath all that, with those assertions, this ground, this abyss-like oneness is always there. And so that's what I mean by uh, where we, he, he invites us to look at examples in daily life. Uh, we say, so the newborn infant, for example, in terms of the powers, developmentally hasn't even to emerge yet. It can't roll over, can't sit up, can't feed itself, can't talk, can't, and yet the newborn infant, they're so smitten by the infant. Mm -hmm. So then when the mother clasps the infant to her breast and holds it, she senses the preciousness is the, is the ground of the infant, the divinity of the infant. Also, in this moment, if she reflects on it, that moment of being so taken by the, of the preciousness of the infant reveals her to herself as capable of seeing the essence knowing that if she were to die in the act of saving the life of this infant, she would die in the truth. It has a value that can't be, it really has a divine value. It's worth all that God is worth, the generosity of God. And then it helps her to see that's true of her too, but it's covered over by the density of the powers. Yeah. So she's saying, how can I then uh, kind of find a gentle path to let the light of my own preciousness shine out through the powers, what would be, how can Eckhart help me to find this, this unitive path toward this lived, experientially lived oneness or essence, shining out through and ribbon through the powers? It's such a great example because the, the baby hasn't developed the powers yet. And it helps me see in my own life how, you know, I can get so frustrated with myself if I don't understand this, or I can, you know, I, I yeah, kind of yes. through the powers can, can be quite down on myself. 
And a couple examples too. Thomas Merton says somewhere, uh, one of the gifts of the interior life is freedom from the need to understand. Because in the depths of things, I'll never understand. Because it, it, it's infinite. But to accept that you don't understand and deeply accept it is a deeper way to understand. You know, unknowing this understanding. And another subtle thing about this is, although the infant reveals this to us, we also see along the way the artist reveals this to us, and the poet reveals this to us, the solitary reveals this to us. There's certain pathways that have this shining through of something, see, shining through. And also it's interesting, it's to be at the deathbed of the dying loved one. So all their powers are unraveling before our eyes. Yet there's something deathless and beautiful shining out like the essence, like the ground laid bare. Like this, so in the beginning and at the end, is somehow most accessible. We're trying to find in between. How do we know that every moment's like that? How can we just discover that for ourselves and live by it? Yeah. I love the way Meister Eckhart is just so uh, clear on the path of not knowing. Just basically, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, He doesn't try and dress it up, but uh, just pointing out how there's certain things he doesn't know, even though he knows all of this. <laughs> And I think another thing about the I don't know this way, too, is these moments of where the, it flashes forth, is the I don't know is the, where we're stunned by the beauty of something and we're silenced. So we don't know because it's a heightened state of awareness, uncomprehended. Like purely experiential. Yes, we're trying to become more, uh, like, find, recalibrate our sensitivities. That we begin to realize and appreciate the subtlety that's always there is so easily overtaken by the intensity of the day's demands and um, how to protect or find the path where we protect ourselves from uh, tipping over all the time with uh, the complexities of the day. Those examples you gave, they gave me a sense that it's almost like when, you, when you're on the edge of yourself that you're getting closer to yourself, but in a kind of grounded in a, a loving way, like grounded in, in an openness to something loving happening versus That's right. being on the edge of ourself in a, a risky, kind of aggressive, fearful way. Yeah, the two things, you know, Thomas Merton talks about being a boundary person, mm -hmm. looking at the edge. And he said, then you discover at a deeper level, the boundary person is living in the true center. Mm. So it's at the edge, but in another way, it is the depth, of, like TSL, the, the axis of the turning world, the still point. And so it's at the edge of the possible. That edge is itself the axis of the ground itself, like that. Yeah. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? 
explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. There was a, a line um, that I was hoping you'd unpack for me a little bit because I'm pretty sure I heard you say that when we have these moments, you called it, we might be a momentary mystic, but it's unveiled in a veiled way. Did I hear that right? Yes. In other words, let, let's say in the powers illumined by grace, efficacious unto holiness. So when we hear, oh, we open the scriptures, we hear that God loves us. And so the powers of the spirit that dwells in our heart were moved to know that God does love us, an obscure certainty in our heart. Mm -hmm. But that knowledge that God does love us is veiled in the idea that God loves us, in the insight that God loves us. And so that's it's true, it's real, but veiled. So when we die, pass through the veil of death, it'll be eternally unveiled. What this mystical awareness is, this deep awareness of, is even though we're still alive on this earth, it becomes more and more unveiled, more and more of a, the oneness itself, like divinity in all directions. But here's the thing, that unveiled unitive clarity is itself veiled, that it's obscure, even to the one privilege to be transformed into it. Mm. Like, I know not what to make of it. It's like you're struggling to find the words to say it, like the... And in that sense, it's, it's, it's veiled. It's, ve it's, a, it's a veiled, unveiled. Yeah, we said this before with Merton. You know, he said, uh, sometimes the most important things in our life are, are things we simply have to accept when we go crazy inside. And they're the very things we can't explain to anybody, including ourselves. See, I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. And so it's unveiled, but it's veiled. And when I try to find the words to explain to you what it is that I see so clearly, I... Uh, so that's the subtlety of it, I think. I would say this too. It's like people who are deeply in love with each other trying to find the words to express their love that does justice to the love. Mm -hmm. the, the clearer the love gets, the more aware they are of the limitations of language to say it. And yet when they say I love you to each other, the depth from which the words I love you come, the words I love you transcend the limits of language. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a sacramental kind of understanding of communion or realization, yeah. Eckhart offers us a path or a method, and you, you begin to just give us a little insight into that, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. But it's this path of detachment. Yes, what we're building towards here, he's saying, um, so what is this way of life? What is this path? along which I can actually experientially abide in the oneness of the ground. And so the path cannot be a path of attaining because nothing's missing. Because the ground is the infinite generosity of God completely being given to us as this death of ourself. And therefore, the path has to be one of becoming detached from what hinders us from realizing it. And we're detached from what it really is, I think, it's, it's modalities where we get caught up thinking the, how this circumstance we're in turns out mm. uh, determines the fundamental state of my mind and heart. 
It's, it's somehow the conditions that I'm in, the constantly shifting conditions. And my conditioned state of being affected by those conditions determines the deepest depths of the felt sense of my mind and heart. See? How to find within oneself a grounded place. And what you do is you catch yourself in reactivity. You catch yourself in absolutizing the relative. And he gives a lot, well, in that talk when I do that, I'll share about five or six practical examples that it kind of can allow us to practice this throughout the whole day. Oh, wonderful. And then, then he's going to say that as that detachment deepens, can you hear the lawnmower? I'm detached, Jim. I don't hear oh, it. That's right. <laughs> wow, this talk's working. Wow. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, what he's, what's he's saying is if you choose to live this way, a kind of an empty-handed, open process of constantly letting go of everything is having the final say in who you are. You acknowledge it. But you know, it, it's, it doesn't have the final say in who you are. It doesn't have the final say of who you are in the presence of God and so on. So the more you continue on in that way, it, it, you're, at least to this Galazanite, which is being released see, from that which hinders. And the, the key phase of this, the metaphor he uses, is the birth of the word in the soul. Mm. What comes welling up out of the ordinariness of everything is the divinity of everything as uh, permeating uh, the details of standing up and sitting down and waking up and going to sleep and every everything, the divinity of everything, intimately seen. So he talks about this image of birthing, like an eternal birthing of uh, God. What a great word, Galassenheit. It, 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 it almost sounds like a, a release of something, like almost like... It does. Yeah. <laughs> To me, when I first heard the word, it had connotations of gazunheit, like you sneeze. I was, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> like a, like, like a, uh, it's kind of a release, only instead of a, a, an instantaneous release, by the way, there are certain gazunheit moments of gelazenheit, it flashes <laughs> forth. But what he's looking for is an habitual underlying state of releasement. I see. Of this birthing. And then in the next talk, we'll give examples of what life looks like when one's come to that. Well, I know in the next talk you're going to go into a lot more depth about detachment, but this is a really helpful beginning. And what it sounds like, there, there is a connotation of the world detachment where it can feel like you're being cold, cold-hearted, like detached, I'm not really present to you. But it sounds like it's a path of becoming more present to this ground that we tend to be not aware of. And so we are stepping back or detaching from what he calls the powers. Would that be one way of looking at it? Yeah, I want to say, yes, exactly. One way of saying it is what detachment is, is moving away at one level to get unexplainably closer at a deeper level. Because it's the intensity of our engagement, which has to do with control. It has to do with things that's actually getting in the way. So it's actually stepping back at one level to be unexplainably closer at a deeper level. I want to give an example from therapy, too. And someone who's working through their trauma or through their, I mean, whatever it is. As, as the clinician, I have to maintain a certain detachment. But the detachment is I not get in the person's way of bringing themselves out into the open to express and share themselves, which allows me then at a deeper level to begin to discern or to pick up certain underlying attitudes that are contributing to the person's stuck place 
but then invites me to uh, help that person see them too. So there's a kind of a detachment that's the basis for the oneness that uh, makes it safe to be so vulnerable and allows for a kind of a deeper meeting, really ultimately with yourself, with the mm. mystery of yourself. That's, that image helps me. That's I also think yeah. I also think an artist, for example, or a poet, th there's a craft and the commitment to it. But there's another there's a, there's a point if they're always in control, it's just crafts. They're just replicating something. So they realize in some sense they have to step back to let something happen. See, that they, they themselves can't produce, but it flows through them in in the detached commitment. And so I don't know this this subtle thing is you can see it plays out in a lot of different ways. Yes, yes. I'm really looking forward to learning more about it too. You read a second part uh, from an Eckhart sermon, and I, I don't know if you have it there to read it again about the mirror. Oh, yes. I wouldn't mind if you just read it again kind of slowly and with such a brilliant metaphor. Yeah. Yes. I have it right here. Eckhart says, an image is not of itself, nor is it for itself. It has its origins in that of which it is the image. To that it belongs properly with all that it is. It does not belong to what is foreign to this origin. That's very important. See, I do not belong to what is foreign to this image. And here he's going to say, I don't belong to anything that's not God, since I'm the image of God. To that it belongs properly with all that it is. It does not belong to what is foreign to this origin, nor does it owe anything to this, anything to what is foreign to this. An image receives its being immediately from that of which it is an image. It is one being with it and is, an, and is the same being. Every image has two properties. The first is that it receives its being immediately from that of which it is an image without interference of the will. Its outgoing is indeed natural and thrusts itself out of nature like a branch from a tree. When an image is cast on a mirror, our face will be reflected on it whether it likes it or not. That's the text. And then you talked about this idea of having a reflection in the mirror, but the reflection of us actually thinks it's real. Yeah, yes. I imagine you're looking at an image of yourself in a full-length mirror, except it's a self-reflective thinking image of you. And it's been through a lot of therapy. It's, <laughs> uh, it's meditated a lot. It's worked through a lot of things. And I think the time has come to branch out on its own, that it doesn't need you. And you try to explain to the image as gently as possible that it won't go well without you because it's an image of you. <laughs> but the image just thinks you're trying to hold it back. You know, you're preventing me from... And so to, to prove your point, you step halfway off the mirror, half the image disappears. It has a panic attack, has to go back on Xanax, goes into <laughs> therapy and says, I'm not real. Now, the image is real. It isn't real the way it thinks it's real. And Eckhart says that's so us with God. Wow. See, we think we're real without God. I think I'm here all by myself. Yes. But, but when you think about it, to be at the deathbed of a dying loved one is so tangible that our next heartbeat is from God, not from us. We cannot give ourselves our next heartbeat. We can't give ourselves our next breath, lest we be presumptuous. And yet we constantly go around imagining with this, this separate self, so we're trying to find ourselves as being this perpetual generosity of manifested love, that we are the song God sings. And without God singing the song of us, no us. Mm. And we're trying to find our way to experientially live 
in that. Yes. Yeah. It's such a powerful story. And reminds me how Corey and I one day want to do the the comedy of the mystics. You have some good (laughs) stories, but it made me laugh laugh when I heard it. But it's it's just so... um, so brilliant. He he was obviously yeah, yeah. a brilliant man to be so clear about these concepts. Uh, you, oh, he, would, he oh, must he, have yeah, really just, understood uh, them deeply. Yeah. How God raises up certain people, like all these mystics we study, God raises up certain people that are gifted to say things with such refined, you know, that's where they're guiding us. Yes. Really. And it's so simple because yeah, it's so something simple. we do every day. Look in them. Yeah. Yeah. I had a whole talk I used to have given it for a long time. The whole talk is jokes, mystical jokes. (laughs) And I think the thing is, I used to think about my talks, is the pedagogy is that when you're laughing, you're participating. But you're participating, you get it at a deeper level than comprehending it. Yes, yes. You're surprised by it in a way that something comes through. And there's a kind of a joy in that, I think. Yeah, I think so. So when, we, when we're stuck in our, what he calls the powers or our faculties and we can't see beyond ourselves and that kind of operating system, um, we feel this sense of being separate. We feel this, this sense of having, we're, we're on our own, we've got to make this work. It's, and that's the, the kind of that sense of the image in the mirror, wanting, wanting to be experiencing itself as a separate self. You know, this is so mysterious because, see, in a way we are separate. The Buddhists say each of us breathes through our own nose. Like I'm me and you're you, we're separate. But the issue gets to be where we absolutize the separateness. And really not just separate from each other, where everyone, the thing around me is other than me. But I, I, I then imagine that I experience that I and all of us collectively are other than this infinite reality welling up and giving itself to us as our very reality. Yeah, it was very comforting to hear you say in the podcast that we are real. We are real, you said, but just not in the way we think we are. Because it can be confusing sometimes when you hear spiritual teachers talking about this idea of illusion, and it just can feel hard to find your ground as in your own experience. You know what, I think another insight into this and this could apply to our conversation now, or this could apply to, to therapy, or anytime two people are in the midst of a very deep talk of mutual sharing with each other. You, you can kind of tell when you're showing up in a more exposed, engaged, and real way. And when you compare how s- the substantiality of that reality, like the, the validity of the presence of it, or even to smell a flower, it's so present, like it's so immediately real. It helps you to see how throughout the day you get caught up in half realities. You know, you get up in your wondering mind, your projections, and you're uh, like skimming over the surface of the depths of the immediacy of everything. And so I think that's what daily meditation does for us too. Daily meditation helps us to stabilize that sustained groundedness of presence, communal presence. And so Eckhart is suggesting what we do in, like in the cloud of unknowing or the ladder to heaven. He's suggesting a way to have that meditative state through the whole day mm. to a detachment that leads to the birth. That's, we'll, we'll see as this goes along. That's his teaching. Yes. Really. And he also recognizes that this release is not just a release from, from the faculties, 
but it's also a release from a certain kind of suffering. I, th- I think you said that word that, that he's trying to help us see the way we suffer in these ways. Because he's going to say that, that the root of suffering or the root of traumatization is not found among all the traumatizing things that can and sometimes do occur to us. Not the root of trauma mm. of suffering. Mm. The root of trauma of trauma of, of the woundedness is a traumatized capacity to be stabilized in this abyss-like love that sustains us in our woundedness. Mm. Yeah. And he's going to say that's really the root of suffering. But once we heal the root of suffering, then there's a kind of a groundedness in the midst of suffering that allows us to be present to it. In, in a grounded way and kind of pace ourselves and so on. So he's trying to heal this depth dimension to then be the ground out of which on the horizontal dimension we share in a more grounded way, which I think is Eckhart giving his sermons. That was his vocation. Mm. So whenever we're true to our calling, whether we live alone or are married or a parent or a teacher or whatever, whenever we're in the flow of the truth of our calling, this ground, the energy of the ground is flowing through the powers and we just feel that it's real. Yeah. You know, this is this matters. This counts in a way that can't be explained. And you can also tell when you're kind of slid off into things that are half true, or not even half true. Just uh, and we get caught in that. Our diversions. I was distracted from the distraction by a distraction. T. S. Eliot says. Yes. And uh, uh, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, what a great start to learning about Eckhart, and I'm really looking forward to the next session on detachment and learning more about this path. Yeah, me too. Look forward to sharing it. Look forward to sharing it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.